This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Here's what coveting is. Coveting is when you place so much value on something that you believe you cannot live without it. It's not simply just wanting something. That can be desire. But it's when you want something so bad, you believe that that thing will make you, sustain you, give you meaning and purpose and hope, that you think if you don't get it, you can't live. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hey there, welcome to Today with Jeff Fines. In our message today, Pastor Jeff talks about coveting. From his series called Ways to Freedom, Pastor Jeff is stepping through some of the Ten Commandments. First up, what does it mean to covet? Turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we begin this message on Today with Jeff Fines. Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. I'm gonna read verse two and then verse 17. Don't worry, it'll be on the screen and I'll get back to it in a moment. And God spoke these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, you'll notice I started with the 10th commandment. That's not the first one. We're beginning a new series uh, called Ways to Freedom. Now, how many of you have a Waze app? Anybody? I love this app. What man would not love to find out where he's going without having to stop and ask for directions? And I have the voice of a woman on my app. And I'll tell you why in a second. She reroutes me when traffic is backed up. I love that. Uh, She tells me about debris that's on the road. She tells you if there's a car that's on the shoulder uh, to prevent you from having an accident. She tells you where to eat that's somewhere on the way to your ultimate destination. I mean, that, that's just fantastic. Actually, someone said that had the wise men been three wise women, they would have asked for directions, arrived on time, helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought usable gifts. And I got to tell you, uh, the voice on my app is a female voice. And I'm not sure why. I've tried to dissect that. Is it because I don't want another man telling me what to do? (laughs) Or is it because I've grown accustomed to listening to the voice of my wife? In fact, for Christmas, she gave me a poster to put on my wall. And it's on my office door. It says, I only do what the voices inside my wife's head tell her to tell me to do. (laughs) She gave me that for Christmas. So the bottom line with Waze is that you get to where you want to go without detours, delays. What man doesn't want that? Now listen carefully. What Waze is to driving, the Ten Commandments are to mankind and to every civilization. Let me say it again. What Waze is to driving, the Ten Commandments are to mankind and every civilization. If you want to arrive at your destination, aware of potential detours and dangers, enjoying the journey as best you can in this world, then you've got to listen to the voice of the ultimate app, the God app, who has chosen to reveal himself 
in his ways, his ways, W-A-Z-E, that ultimately lead to freedom. Now, wait a minute. To get the most out of this, we have to set the series up well. And the first thing we have to do is define, what do we mean by freedom? It is not the absence of restriction. That's not what freedom means. Because sometimes your freedoms are going to conflict. You've heard me talk about this before. You cannot eat whatever you want and live to be a grandfather. I'm going to be a grandfather soon. That's why I'm watching while I'm eating. I want to be around to enjoy my grandchildren. You can't ride your bike without a helmet and not break both your arms sooner or later. But the modern definition of freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. But that definition is unworkable because life doesn't work like that. You can't, you can't say, I want to live or I want a long and happy marriage, but I also want to sleep with whoever I want to. Those are mutually exclusive ideas. You can't say, I want a good job without saying, I'm going to restrict how much drinking and partying I do when I'm at college. You can't say, I want good relationships without restricting your impulses and fantasies. You can't say, I want to be a great athlete without restricting your diet and increasing your exercise. There are certain limitations that are part and partial to, to the world, to your life. A livable, happy, fulfilling life includes accepting enormous constraints on your life. These are the harsh realities. You might say to yourself, well, you know, but I choose. No, you don't. They choose you. They choose you. You must submit to them. But no one knows better than God then, if he's the creator of the world, how you can best navigate your life and get the most out of life, which is why he shows you the restrictions or the boundaries in which you are to live. And for a lot of us, we hear those two words together, boundaries, freedom, and we think those are mutually exclusive. Well, no, they're not. Let's go back to the old illustration of the sailboat. It's made to sail and to ride the wind, but you've got one of two choices. You can experience the freedom of speed sailing only when you limit the boat to the proper depth of water and to face the wind in the right direction. If you violate the design, disintegration sets in almost immediately. If you try to take it into shallow water or if you try to position the boat in relation to the wind in a way that it would cause it to capsize or to stall or stagnate or ultimately destroy it completely, you're not using the boat as it was intended to be used. If God made you, then he knows how you are intended to be used. Your body, your thoughts, your emotions, your desires, all of it. And you've heard me say this. I've said this as long as I can remember as I've been in ministry. Because someone said to me, I don't like a God who restricts me. And I've said, well, that's because you don't understand that God, when he gives law, doesn't give it arbitrarily. He gives it because he loves you. When I tell my son Delaney not to play in the middle of the street. Now... When I was a young kid, the middle of the street was the best place to play. We played wiffle ball in the street because it's flat. The ball rolls. Uh, Miss Stover's yard was the home run boundary into the corn. It was the perfect place to play. The problem is if you play in the middle of the road, sooner or later on a busy street, you're going to get hit by a car. So you've got to learn to see the law of God is not motivated to show you that he's the big, bad, cosmic boss. He gives it because he loves you so much, he doesn't want you to play in the middle of the street. But what we do is we play in the middle of the street and then complain to God when our life falls apart. God, how could you? Remember what we said last week of Psalm 103, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear, respect him. 
So first, what is freedom? Before we go into this series, freedom then should be defined like this. Submitting to boundaries given by God so as to not be trapped by that which diverts, destroys, or causes disintegration. Now second, why do we choose the Ten Commandments as the objective moral authority of how we should live? Why not some other ways, W-A-Z-E? Why the Ten Commandments? You know, when Delaney, my son, was 12 years old, he saw my junior high yearbook, and without hesitation, he said, you know, I'm guessing, Dad, that most of these people in here are dead. (laughs) Do you know the sad reality of our culture, folks? Anything that's remotely aged, we've written it off. My iPhone, they've slowed it down, so I'd have to buy the next one. I'm so ticked. You spend good money on something, and they want you to update it. You do, and it slows down. That's right. (laughs) Professors today, not all, but professors, generally speaking, will not use a textbook that's more than four years old, even if the textbook is about ancient history. (laughs) And people say, how dare we suggest that we follow laws that are thousands of years old, even though those very laws have shaped our culture. Cecil B. DeMille, I don't know if you know that name, but at the New York opening of his epic film entitled The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston and Yul Brynner, he stated, the Ten Commandments are not the laws, the Ten Commandments are the laws. And he was so determined to make this film that he basically gave his own life. Because while they were filming on location in Egypt, he was 75 years old, he climbed to the top of a 107 feet, uh, foot ladder to shoot the famous scene, the Exodus scene from atop this massive Paramzee set. In the intense heat, he suffered a heart attack, ultimately from which he, did never, he never recovered. He died January 21st, 1959. Let me read to you part of his speech, and I've quoted it for you in New York. Man has made 32 million laws since the Ten Commandments were handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai more than 3,000 years ago, but never improved on God's law. The Ten Commandments are the principles by which man may live with God and man may live with man. They are the expressions of the mind of God for his creatures. They are the charter and the guide of human liberty, for there can be no liberty without law. He goes on to say that what he had hoped, that when people come to see the Ten Commandments, that they would be filled with the sight of this big spectacle, but they would also be filled with the spirit of truth. That somehow when they watch the movie, they would have a better understanding of the real meaning of this pattern of life, the Ten Commandments, that God has set down for us to follow. You say, okay, Jeff, I hear you, but you still haven't answered the question, why the Ten Commandments? Why should that be the objective moral law, the boundaries in which we should live? Two short answers. Stay with me. Number one, Jesus said that heaven and earth would pass away. But the law would not. In Matthew 5, 17, For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. If you think about what Jesus is saying, that is an amazing statement. Look at something like Mount Everest. It's the tallest mountain in the world. It soars almost five and a half miles into the sky. And it, the end of it actually pierces the jet stream at the iconic summit. Scientists tell us it's 60 million years old. Jesus said that those mountains will pass away long before the law does. Because the law is eternal. The mountains are not. A couple of years ago, I'm ashamed to admit this. I made my first trip to Washington, D.C. Now, I've been to Fairfax, Virginia. 
But I'd never been to the Capitol. But some friends of, of mine, the, the McMahons, the Hancocks, and then my wife and I, visited the Capitol. We got the luxury of a few tours. Let me describe something for you that I didn't know. As you walk up the steps to the very building that houses the U.S. Supreme Court, right at the top, near the top of the building, is a row of world law givers. And each one is facing the guy in the middle who has a full frontal view. And he is Moses holding the Ten Commandments. The idea is that all laws are derivatives of the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. As you enter into the Supreme Court, which they won't let you take photos, the two huge oak doors that guard the room on the lower portion list the Ten Commandments. As you sit inside the courtroom, you can see a wall right above where the Supreme Court justices sit. And on that wall is the Ten Commandments. And there are Bible verses etched in stone throughout almost every monument within Washington, D.C. James Madison, the fourth president, the father of the Constitution, the father of the Constitution said this, we have staked the whole of our political institutions upon the capacity of mankind for self-government, upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. What's he saying? He's basically saying you cannot legislate morality. You can't force people to be good. The law is useless unless people's hearts have been changed by the law of God. Now, there's something else. The, the low respect, the lowest respect for the Bible came somewhere between the 18th and 19th centuries when some of the world's greatest minds were trying to cast off the straitjackets of the Dark Ages. During that season, the view of the Bible, and this is a whole sermon in and of itself, it was believed that the Bible was just a mass of old wives' tales. And Moses was much like Apollo, just an invention. And there's no such historical happening as the exodus from Egypt, uh, nor any of the other events that actually occurred. That was the belief. But then there was a problem. The science of archaeology arose. And we discovered that all the history of the Eastern Mediterranean civilization in the Bible is accurate. That we have in hand a substantial cooperation of the main points of the Jewish national narrative. What does that mean? It all happened. Moses, Ten Commandments, the descendants of Abraham conquering Canaan, the rise and fall of the Hebrew monarchy. In fact, no serious thinker today even questions these things anymore. The Israelites descended from a small nation which came about from the Sinai Desert into Canaan 3,000 years ago with the tradition of liberation from Egypt under a lawgiver and a deliverer by the name of Moses. No serious thinker questions those facts. You know what historians do, do however? They can't believe that the Jews actually still exist. Historians think that one of the secrets of humanity is that the people called the people of God are still around. Because of how many times they've been in captivity. Because they were farmers, not warriors. Because they were often dispersed. And they lay claim to a very small piece of land in the Middle East. Someone once wrote, How odd of God to choose the Jews. And now historians are starting to use even the word miraculous. 
Now, you and I believe that they are here because they are the chosen of God. What does that mean exactly? Well, it means that God wanted to model to all human history what it's like to have a relationship with Him and what He requires from His people. So He personally related to the Hebrews. He gave them the law. They were responsible for it, but He gave them the law so that all of humanity would know it. And here's what we do know by respected historians. When the Israelites followed the commands of the Ten Commandments, their nation and economy thrived. When they disobeyed, it began to unravel and dissipate. When they obeyed, God blessed. When they disobeyed, they they began to unravel not only individually, but politically, economically, as a nation. Which brings us to the question, why do we keep the Ten Commandments? Why do we say that we should? Because we believe they're from God. We believe they are the way to peace and freedom. We believe that they prevent disintegration of the soul and counter things like anxiety and depression and many other mental illnesses. We believe that God has compassion on those who fear Him. We believe there's a connection between obedience and blessing. And finally, we believe that one day these Ten Commandments, these laws of God will bring everlasting peace and will be the governing authority of the kingdom that is to come. So now, that's why we begin with the Tenth Commandment. Because the Tenth Commandment is really the first commandment put into psychological terms. The Tenth Commandment is really the first commandment put into psychological terms. What's the first commandment? You'll have no other gods before you. The the second reason we start with the Tenth Commandment is it's a perfect example of what we say the commandments do. We say they, we believe they're the way to peace and freedom, that they will prevent disintegration of the soul, anxiety, depression, and many other mental illnesses. What does Commandment 10 say? It says this, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, folks, when we go through these commandments, I believe your eyes are going to be open to a lot of stuff. But you have to go in knowing they're not given arbitrarily. God loves you. You live within those confines. It's an incredible freedom. You get outside of them, they're going to destroy you from the inside out. We see that in people and in nations. So back to the sermon. (laughs) What is coveting? And second, why does it restrict or trap or cause disintegration? What is coveting? And what do you mean, Pastor Jeff? that it's a psychological explanation of the first commandment, have no other gods before you. Here's what coveting is. Coveting is when you place so much value on something that you believe you cannot live without it. It's not simply just wanting something. That can be desire. But it's when you want something so bad that you think if you don't get it, you can't live. You believe that that thing will make you, sustain you, give you meaning and purpose and hope. So that you say, I've got to get the girl. I've got to get the job. i got to get that house. i got to get that car. i got to get their respect. i got to get their approval. I've got to get that thing or I will die. At that moment, that thing becomes your God. And you've broken the first commandment as well. When if you don't have 
the career that you want, the marriage that you want, the money that you want, the sex that you want, the influence that you want, the peer approval, the love, your favorite sports team, if it doesn't win and you think you can't live. Whatever you think you can't live without that depresses you so, whatever you start pursuing that you pursue more than God, that you have to lie to yourself to tell you that you're not pursuing it more than God, but right now that thing's entering your mind, that becomes your God. Think about it. What is a false God? That which you worship. Worship is just a, a word that means ultimate worth. It's what you give ultimate worth to. So if you have to choose between the two, you choose this. For some of you, if you have to choose money and doing things ethically, which one are you going to choose? That's, you're going to choose your God. That which you serve. What drives you? What causes you to get up in the morning? What are you passionate about? That's your God. That's what you serve. It's what you obey. Whatever it requires, you give it. And you attach your identity to it. I see this all the time, especially in us guys. You see, you see them. They're walking around. I see them at the golf course mostly. They're walking around, all the right equipment, all the right clothing, driving the right car, got their chin up in the air, and basically their identity and significance is tied to what other people think about them. So they spend their entire life trying to prove to everybody how much money they have and how much stuff they have, and that's where they get their approval. It's not only the wealthy that do that. We all do that. Stay with me, please. Psychologically, idols are the things they give you meaning and significance. You attach yourself to them in an illegitimate fashion, psychologically. Sociologically, idols are the things that give you credibility. The things that you think you have or that you try to possess that will then cause you to be valued and adored by the people that you respect. But there's also theological idolatry. And that's when you feel accepted in the eyes of God because of how good you are, or how much Bible you know, or how many weekends a year that you offer in service for the poor. So first, what is coveting? It's pursuing something more than you pursue God in hopes that it can deliver something that only God can deliver. Everybody has a life's lie. Everybody has a life's lie. What's your life's lie? Here's your life's lie. It's the thing that you think if you get it, everything's going to be fine now. That's your life's lie. Everybody in the room has one. I do, you do, we do. In the human flesh, we fight against it. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. If I can just change my things, man, then life will be good. The problem is you're the ultimate narcissist and you're leaving carnage wherever you go. Or two, you can blame yourself. You can blame yourself to an unhealthy degree. I mean, I'm not saying it's not good to look inside and see what's going on. The problem is, if you blame yourself, you start looking around at all the press releases and you start believing the good about everybody else. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts.
today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.